An extended hold on military promotions by a Republican senator is distorting talks over the national defense authorization bills. Now, the House narrowly passed its version late last week, but what it passed doesn't look to fly in the Senate. And that's not all bothering Congress these days. We get the outlook from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's talk about the House bill. What are some of the barbs in there that are just not going to get the Senate to swallow? Well, this was another high-wire political act for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the Republican conference needing to wrangle those conservative members to join with the more moderates. And before diving into the politics of this, I should note it includes a 5.2% pay increase for military personnel. That's the largest in decades, and it would raise the pay of entry-level military men and women to historic highs. Now, as for how this moves forward, as you alluded to, very complicated. Members of that conservative House Freedom Conference were pleased that they were able to offer up a slew of amendments, but the one that stands out in terms of getting this passed by the Senate, and really it's a major roadblock to getting it passed in the Senate, is an amendment which prohibits the Pentagon from reimbursing military personnel for traveling for an abortion. It does not actually pay for the abortion procedure itself. That is the issue that has caused Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville to continue to put a hold on those hundreds of military officers' promotions in the Senate, and it's clearly going to be an issue that will have to be worked out as the Senate works on its version of the NDAA. And as you know, this has always passed one of the only things that actually passes on time in Congress. It's done this for more than six decades in a row. But right now, it's really unclear what the path forward is. You had Senator Tuberville speaking with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin last week, and they're supposed to speak again this week. But again, it's not clear how it's going to get resolved. And then there are also all these other hot-button issues in this House legislation. Among them, in addition to this abortion issue, there are issues related to LGBTQ and whether there can be any kind of medical care or psychological assistance for people that are involved in transitions. There's also a major provision that would essentially take out the diversity quotient, if you will, within the Pentagon uh, in trying to address issues related to race relations. Uh, Basically, Republicans say that this is another critical race theory and that they accuse Democrats of trying and the Pentagon of trying to make it a woke military. Democrats are fiercely opposed to this. They say that the Republicans really don't have a definition for what this is. So as you can see here, you have a big stew brewing then with the Democratic-controlled Senate getting ready to take this bill. It's really going to take some work now to see what's going to happen and finally get it across the finish line. So about the only thing they do agree on is, besides some of the numbers that are authorized, the 5.2% pay raise, that they do have unanimity on. They do. And overall, you know, the bill, when it came out of the House Armed Services Committee, it was actually passed on a 58 to 1 vote. But then, because of this tenuous situation that we've talked about for months in connection with the House Speaker and the conservatives within his conference, he decided that it would be better to just let them put out all of these amendments out on the floor and see where things landed. Now, it did pass. Again, it was narrow, but he got the votes that he needed, 219 to 210. But then that sets up this big collision with the Senate. And even though they're very similar in terms of the numbers, as you noted, there are these hot button issues that I think are going to cause uh, some real problems as this moves forward. And by the way, that 219 to 210 means there are a few Democrats 
in the House that did vote for it. That's right. There were four Democrats that actually voted for it and four Republicans that voted against it. And while that may not seem like a lot when you consider the fact that Speaker McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes in his conference if he loses five and doesn't get any support from Democrats, then something can't pass. And so there was actually some nervousness ahead of before this vote because a lot of people were wondering after this has passed for decades, as I mentioned, was it really possible that it might not pass? And there was some talk about that in the days leading up to the vote. But Speaker McCarthy proudly stepped up to the microphone after the vote and said, hey, to reporters, you were all asking me these questions about whether or not this was going to pass. It passed. And then he talked about the policies and, and really touted that pay hike, basically trying to jab the Democrats and say, why would you vote against a pay hike for military personnel? We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. So we'll see how that plays in the Senate. And they've got some time, but it's going to be interesting. There are other issues. One was that Government Accountability Office report that came out something of a blockbuster last week with respect to how little occupied all of this federal space is, not just in Washington, but in other cities also. And so lawmakers are wondering, you know, why are we paying for all this leased space? Yeah, this is a real eye-opener, I think, for a lot of members of Congress. I mean, we've talked about over the past several months about this whole issue about how many people were actually going back to their federal offices. And then this GAO report drops saying essentially that out of those federal buildings, they are only at a quarter occupancy in many of them. In fact, the GAO found that 17 agencies were at or below 25% occupancy. And that, as you might imagine, really riled up some of the lawmakers that found out about this report. It came up in one of the subcommittees, the House Economic Development, Public Buildings, and Emergency Management Subcommittee. And among those who were highly critical is the chairman of that subcommittee, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. He just said, you've got to be using your space. And he says, basically, that Republicans are going to push these agencies and try to, as he said, we're going to try to help them do it. And he doesn't mean help in a good way. So I think you're going to see a lot more attention on this issue, even though there have been, you know, issues, as you've noted with Federal News Network over the years that there have been problems with this and whether or not they were really filled buildings now, especially in the wake of the pandemic, I think this is going to get a lot more attention. Right. So no legislation at this point actually specifically proposed, but it sounds like they could get at it through maybe appropriations and say, well, your rent allowance is 25 percent of what it was last year. Right. Because we've already seen this actually with the FBI. A lot of Republicans have said that they need to take away the funding from the FBI so it won't move to its new headquarters. In fact, there's even a new proposal from Jim Jordan of Ohio, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who wants to move it to Alabama in an existing building, saying that that could save money. Obviously, that's getting a lot of pushback from Virginia and Maryland lawmakers in the Washington region because they're still battling to see whether it could be relocated either in Northern Virginia or in Prince George's County. But yeah, I think you're just going to see lawmakers really getting a lot more micromanaging on these issues related to federal buildings, because let's face it, if a building is 75% empty and the government is paying all the money, whether they own it, they lease it or whatever the situation is, uh, it's just going to come under a lot more scrutiny from lawmakers. Yes, because if they own the building, and of course in the D.C. area, well, other cities too, then it's easier to consolidate. Right. Say, well, you know what? You're going to I mean, there are shared uses of federally owned buildings as it is now. So that's not an unknown thing to do. But 
maybe they can force a little bit more in. I guess the universal constant that no one can quite figure out besides gravity and the, uh, and, and, and the uh, preservation of energy is the traffic in Washington is horrible and nobody's going to work. So, right. I know. That's really the conundrum, isn't it? That I've just spoken with people anecdotally, and they say that the traffic has continued to get worse. And yet, if you look at a lot of these figures about how many people are actually working in these federal buildings, you know, five days a week, much less three, it's obviously a lot less than it used to be. So it's an interesting situation. And the FBI generally is kind of getting roughed up, one over its headquarters debate, and then that wonderful quaff of Director Ray kind of got mussed up a little bit in that Judiciary Committee hearing. You've seen a lot of these kinds of hearings. This was one of the roughest on an agency official you've seen. Yes, I could not recall an incident where, or a hearing where the FBI director, in this case, Christopher Ray, got just battered like a pinata during the entire hearing. And it was all from Republicans. It was really an interesting reversal. You know, years ago, you used to have Democrats criticizing the FBI for doing various things in terms of internal investigations and looking after people on the left. Now you have it totally flipped in the other direction, and Republicans very skeptical of what the FBI is doing, asking about how it's handling the FISA requests, still going back to issues related to former President Trump and, of course, the more recent investigation related to Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents at the former president's home. And throughout this hearing, I will say that the FBI director did keep his cool. He knew he was in for a really long hearing. In fact, it was broken up in half, and then they came back again and then just started beating up on him again. And he did at one point say... You know, I am known for being a relatively low-key guy, and I tried to lead by example, but he said, don't mistake this for a lack of spine and my defense of the agency. Maybe Mr. Ray and John Kerry could get on Mrs. Hines's jet and fly off somewhere and commiserate <laughs> for the weekend. Right. <laughs> Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at 
numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. 
So I flew down and began to talk with him about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time 
on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.